before we get this episode started, we need to thank our wonderful sponsors. That are sponsors, especially our three annual sponsors, David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, and Campbell University Divinity School. This podcast wouldn't happen. So here's where you come in. Take a few minutes to go to each of their websites and check what they have to offer. Or if you really want to take it to the next level, be sure to tweet about this episode and thank our sponsors. This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, let's give you a snapshot of the next few episodes. We sat down with the chaplain of the Colbert Report, Jesuit priest Father James Martin, podcast host and author Christian Pyatt, and professor of homiletics Kenyatta Gilbert. Be on the lookout for a few special edition episodes featuring a roundup of guests from the podcast stage at General Assembly. And now on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's podcast is Brandon J. O'Brien. He is the Director of Content and Distribution for Redeemer City to City in Manhattan. He's the author, co-author of Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes and Paul Behaving Badly. He just released Demanding Liberty, an untold story of American religious freedom. Brandon, thanks for joining the conversation. Thank you very much for having me. I'm pleased to be here. Well, we know you're in New York, and we'll get to City and City just a little bit, but tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, uh, okay. My, um, I grew up in uh, Arkansas, and uh, fairly rural Arkansas. My wife grew up in Singapore, and we met each other in college, and have been, um, we'll spent the last almost 13 years uh, of marriage kind of discerning God's call for us, but that's taken us from local church ministry to um, academia and um, to writing, and now uh, it's brought us to Manhattan, where we're um, really pleased to be helping resource pastors and church planners around the world in global cities, and um, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know if that's the right direction, but that's a little bit about me. Well, I just can't ever in any type of world uh, understand why somebody would want to go from Arkadelphia, Arkansas to to Manhattan. You know, <laughs> it just has everything you want uh, there, you know, around the campus of uh, uh, Wachita Baptist University. <laughs> That's right. There, I, I have told people before, I can't imagine a more abrupt or dramatic uh, cultural change within the U.S. to go from Arkadelphia to uh, Manhattan, but uh, and I am aware that we're sort of living my 
family's worst nightmare here in uh, the big city, and we've taken their grandchildren with us. So, um, uh, so yes, it has been an adjustment. It's been great for my wife. She grew up in a densely populated, diverse global city, but um, it's been uh, it's been a big adjustment, a very good one, but it's been a big adjustment. Well, shout out to uh, Wachita Baptist University in Arkadelphia. For those that are Google mapping that, that is between Little Rock. <laughs> And Texarkana. So if you're if you're really that's right. That you went to uh, from there, you went on to to Wheaton College. Uh, got an MA in church history, and then uh, got a PhD at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. That's right. So um, then then you land with doing work with City to City. Tell us a little bit more about City to City. Sure. So City to City is um, uh, began years ago as a uh, sort of ministry outreach of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, um, which is uh, started pastored by Tim Keller. Um, but about ten years ago, uh, it, we became our own uh, entity, and uh, which has enabled us um, to work more cross-denominationally and more uh, transculturally. And so, what we do is essentially our vision is to see. Um, gospel movements in global cities. And so we've been at work for years uh, in New York City and then primarily outside of the U.S. in places like Paris and Taipei and KL and Singapore and those kinds of places that are very secular or or uh, very religiously diverse where Christianity is um, a very small minority of the population. And um, we primarily resource in a number of ways through you know, printed materials and coaching and training and relationships, uh, resourcing the church planners that are uh, getting started in those cities. And uh, so it's a, it's been a really exciting, um, I've been here a year, uh, on June 1st will be a year. And so we're um, already excited to see what, what God has done since we arrived and um, are really excited about the years ahead of us. Now, from my understanding, you grew up Baptist. But now you're Presbyterian. What what happened there? <laughs> well, yeah, I grew up uh, Southern Baptist, um, and in a uh, had a, a youth pastor who, um, you know, I, I remind him of this because he's still Southern Baptist. That I that he could either take the credit or take the blame uh, for getting me thinking about theology. He gave me my uh, I was an avid reader in high school, but it was mainly fiction, and he gave me uh, my first volume of theology to read. And um, I had asked some questions, but that sort of gave me, I hadn't, hadn't considered the fact that there might be books out there that had answers to my questions. So um, that uh, it was never really a, a concerted decision to leave. I think that for me, it was a matter of uh, reading the Old Testament a little bit differently uh, and then finding in the Reformed tradition a um, uh, an emphasis on the continuity of the Old Testament and the New Testament rather than a you know, a, a more strict division between the Old and New Testaments. And we found ourselves somewhat by accident, although as a Presbyterian now, I should probably say by providence, that we ended up in a evangelical Presbyterian church in the Wheaton area, um, uh, partly because we were tired of looking for churches and we thought we'd only be there for, you know, the year that I was in grad school. And um, so we settled in and, you know, eight years later when we left, we, we realized that that uh, had not just become a church home, but really that that tradition had become a theological home for me. And, um, and it happened somewhat gradually. And uh, we'll talk obviously about the um, uh, Isaac Backus, who's the subject of demanding liberty. But I think one of the things about his story that I've always found kind of compelling is he, he made 
a journey over the course of about 10 years from be, being congregationalist to being Baptist. And I, over the course of about 10 years, sort of went from being a Baptist to Presbyterian. So uh, he's, he was, we were doing the journey in reverse, but he was a very um, uh, a sympathetic figure for me in that regard, because uh, I kind of knew what that journey was like. Well, I've, I've been a Baptist since, um, I guess, since conception. Um, and I can't, <laughs> I can't really think of a single reason why anybody would not want to be Baptist. <laughs> I mean, we don't have a history of division. Uh, we certainly right. don't have a history of putting our, our foot in our mouth. So, uh, so I, I just can't think of a single reason why you would head over. But of course, <laughs> Presbyterians have, uh, have, have just as much of the history of, of division as, as we Baptists uh, do. It's funny when you talk with people who don't really know much about Baptists and you introduce yourself as a Baptist minister, they kind of give you that look. And I always say, but yeah, we're not those kinds of Baptists because I mean, there's hundreds of ways of, of being Baptists. So. Well, yes, and I when I introduce myself as reformed in certain circles, I have to clarify that that's not a that's not a uh, um, a mental illness. It, it's just a you know for me, it's not a personality disorder. It's just a uh, you know convictions about certain things. So yeah, I think we have our own challenges <laughs> when when uh, Southern Baptists or Baptist ministers and uh, Presbyterians meet in the wild. There could be all kinds of interesting <laughs> conversations. I think you should just introduce yourself as one of the chosen. So, uh, <laughs> so as you're very familiar, growing up in the Baptist Church, we are uh, about to enter into a special season. When this podcast airs, July the second, we will be in what I like to call the season of worshiping America. So just close your eyes and imagine a a spangled clad stage with fireworks shooting. Uh, from it as the choir belts out Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land, a sea of American flags waving throughout congregations, only to be capped off with a full military salute. I wish I can say that is something that I just contrived in my mind, but that, that really happened uh, this last year. Um, so what, are your, what are your thoughts on, um, on what seems to be the, the worship of America in many churches these days? Yeah, well, I can tell you that uh, I I have been in that service as well, and um, I think I be I began to be uh, not so much concerned about it initially, but confused by it. That my um, you know we grew up in a region where there were Presbyterians and Episcopalians and Methodists and others, and I remember that for them the major holidays were Easter and Christmas. Uh, the major religious holidays. And I always found it interesting that obviously Easter was important for us, but in terms of just production value, it seemed that if you were looking from the outside in, that probably Christmas and, and that July 4th weekend might have been our two more important um, holidays. And that I didn't have any sort of a theological framework or historical framework, but it just always struck me as odd um, that that was different for us. And uh, it was really, it was in college when I had a roommate who's from uh austria who's um who saw a flag in a you know in a worship space that we attended together and it really unnerved him and i couldn't imagine why i was confused by it but i wasn't upset by it until he explained that you know and from european context that sort of collusion of church and state 
has had a pretty negative history. Um, and, Absolutely not. Uh, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> and so the uh, you you hate to j- jump straight to Hitler, Hitler and Nazis, right? That's the way you shut down a conversation. So, um, but that's kind of what was hop- hopping through his mind at the time. And and so it kind of got me questioning, you know, why is it that we do this? And I think one of the reasons is because the uh, the idea I would call it a mythology. I don't mean that in in a rude way, but I think that it it is at some level the sort of story about America that um, from the beginning, we have always been committed uh, to religious liberty for all of our citizens. And then somehow it's also true that we've also been uh, committed to evangelical Christian values from our beginning. Um, And so there has been for, you know, generations, a, a pretty tight connection between, you know, Christian worship, especially uh, evangelical Christian worship and reverence for the nation um, and the freedoms that it affords. And, and, you know, the things that bother me the most about it are when we, you know, I'm, I am thankful and, uh, and happy and proud to live in America. But uh, when our language about uh, veterans, for example, that in the, in the way that, um, you know, they died for us is comparable to the way Jesus died for us or something. I think that it gets dangerous in our, um, at least, a nuanced language, the way we talk about liberty from sin, death, and the devil, and liberty in a political sense are very different things. And you can you can have one without the other, but it's uh, sometimes that's not clear. And so, yeah, I think especially since the, the last election, and not even just the election, but the election cycle and the years kind of leading up to that has in some ways reinforced that for many people. I think it's also driven a wedge between church and state for some people, even evangelicals. And so I think we're living in a really interesting time where we've got to kind of figure out what does this relationship look like, you know, in the next generation and moving forward. A little small rabbit trail. Um, so I have a confession to make. And the good news is I'm just confessing it to you. And this isn't going to be an iTunes or anything. But in, <laughs> in the previous church I served, I used to play a little game with the American flag. Uh, we had one member of our church, God rest his soul, who's, uh, is, is passed on. But he was, you know, ex-military, cared that the flag was always in the sanctuary. So I would play a game during each week. And he never figured out who did it. Uh, but I would I would move the flag in different places around the sanctuary, or I would flip the order, and he knew specifically which side you know the Christian flag was supposed to be on versus which side the American flag was on. <laughs> I even went as far as uh, flip flopping the uh, the stands because you know the American flag has to be the tallest flag no matter where it is. So I flip flopped the stands so the Christian flag was the tallest flag, and he never figured out who did it, but it was me. <laughs> uh, so yeah, well, I'm so, glad yeah. you've got that off your chest. I, I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, <laughs> it does make for an interesting time because um, you know this is not a political statement, but it, it was First Baptist Church of Dallas that um, developed this anthem uh, based on Donald Trump's campaign slogan of "Make America Great Again." It's it's an interesting uh, time we live where. For many, uh, they do want the church to can separate itself even further, while some who are grounded in this um, uh, mythology that America is a Christian nation want to entrench themselves further and further into it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and this might be a good time to, to introduce your, your work, because you dig into this a, a good bit. Um, your book that just came out, Demanding Liberty, an Untold Story of American Religious Freedom. And we'll get to Isaac Backus here in just a second. But... Um, you wrote in the book, um, the early federal government was at best agnostic about 
and at worst complicit in ongoing religious establishment until well into the 19th century. It's worth asking, if we miss this, what else have we missed? You know, a lot of people, they look at their, uh, well, if anybody uses cash anymore, I don't, I don't ever care. They look at their, their, you know, dollar bill and they see in God we trust and they think, oh, that's always been there. 1957 was when that was. Mm-hmm. And say so the Pledge right. of Allegiance, One Nation Under God, that was 1954. But for many people, they, they look at America as uh, a theocracy. Uh, so in your mm-hmm. opinion, what's wrong with viewing America as a theocracy? Yeah. So I think there are, there are a couple of ways to answer that. One is it's historically wrong. Um, I think it's, um, you know, I, I know that this will invite criticism from any number of people, but I, I was reflecting recently that I think America has the unique uh, distinction of being very cons- Americans are very concerned about heritage, but not actually interested in history, which I think is a fascinating um, sort of tension, right? So we we want uh, to believe that things uh, will continue to be as they always have been. We want to make sh- we want to. It matters to us what kind of is in our DNA and what we've always been about, and yet we don't actually access the history that can tell us those things. We work from either you know kind of local um, assumptions. So if you live in a very small town in a rural place or something, and everyone's fairly religious, you can kind of you can kind of uh, extrapolate that that's how it used to be and things are changing. Um, but we don't actually examine things. So I think historically, it's wrong to say that America is a theocracy because our, uh, not only our founding fathers, but at, at, at minimum, the founding fathers worked hard to make sure that it was not a theocracy. Um, and then there were people like Isaac Backus and the Baptists that he represented who also worked hard to make sure that it wasn't a theocracy because just saying that this is a Christian nation uh, doesn't clarify what kind of Christian nation and people like the Baptists and the Quakers and Catholics and uh, you know others at the time of the American Revolution were not considered uh, appropriately Christian by the Christian establishment. So just you know, if we were to have a theocracy, what kind of theocracy would we have? And that was an unsettled question at the time. So I think historically it's a problem. I think uh, I think theologically it's a problem. Um, it strikes me as interesting that it's it's often groups who see a real clear break between the Old Testament and the New Testament um, who actually want uh, a a government that's closely aligned with the church. So, you know, one of the arguments Baptists made, you know, 150 years ago was that it was okay for the king and the priest to be closely aligned in the Old Testament in Israel. That was the old dispensation, but under the New Testament, there needs to be a clear division. And and so, I, you know, I think depending on how you read the Bible, it, uh, you know, there's a biblical argument to say that, look, theocracy is, um, you know, is, is an old, it's an, it's an old covenant way of thinking of things. And we think about things in a new covenant way. So I think there's that as well. I also just think, you know, in the 21st century, logistically, um, it's a dangerous mistake to think that we're a theocracy because I think, you know, there are so, there is so much religious diversity in America today um, that it doesn't, uh, I think it, it shapes the way we engage that diversity. If we think that that diversity is threatening our, uh, sort of the- theocratic system, um, but if we if we recognize from history that we've never had one, that we've always kind of struggled to figure out what religious diversity in America looks like, I think that that actually changes the way we engage 
religious diversity or even secularism in America, as, not as a threat, but as something that's always been here and we've always been kind of figuring out the balance of how everyone participates in this American experiment. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Campbell University Divinity School. Committed to Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused theological education, and committed to helping you answer your call with a variety of master's and doctoral-level programs. To get a taste of Campbell's experience, you are invited to attend the World Religions and Global Culture Center's first international conference on religious diversity, July 26th through the 27th. The theme of the conference is Jesus in a Pluralistic Age. Respected Christian and non-Christian leaders and scholars in North Carolina and around the world will participate at the conference as speakers and members of panel discussion. The conference will nurture a spirit of tolerance and mutual understanding among devotees of different faith traditions. Special guests will include local Christian, Jewish, and Muslim clergy, Dr. George Braswell, Dr. Peter Fawn, Dr. Leo Lifbuer of Georgetown University, and Stephen Porter of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The event will begin on Thursday, July 26 at 12.30 p.m. and will end on Friday, July 27th at 11.30 a.m. The cost is $25 and students can attend for free. For more information or to register, visit our website at divinity.campbell.edu. We invite you to learn more about us, check out our degrees, concentrations, and programs, come to one of our continuing education lectures, to a visitation day, to one of our regional recruiting events. Contact us to schedule an individual visit. Call one of our faculty and lead a retreat or Bible study or wrestle with difficult issues. We look forward to hearing from you. I think a good company to your book, uh, Kevin Cruz wrote a book, One Nation Under God. Um, and he talks about the history of how uh, much of the language we use today that we, we is revisionist history. We, we kind of take this language created in the 1950s and project it into, uh, you know, the first two, 300 years of American history and um, calls into question, you know, the way that we've shaped this view of America as a theocracy really in the last, you know, 50 to 60 years. That's right. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't remember that, um, you know, the, the sort of high watermark for conservative Christianity maybe or evangelical Christianity in America was in the, the decade or so after the Second World War. So, and a lot of that had to do with the Second World War. Our, our men came home from battle and our women had you know, been, uh, filled the jobs, they'd filled the home front. They had, you know, everybody was stretched and stressed and, and they had just experienced a kind of, you know, global tragedy that no one could remember, you know, nobody before that could remember. And so that, you know, the rates of church attendance went up and people, I think, felt a sort of national need for, um, you know, for some stability and, and the church provided that. It's also the time period that, you know, a lot of our evangelical institutions were born Christianity today and, and seminaries like uh, Fuller and, you know, others like that, that, that all kind of began in that same, in that same period. Um, what's interesting to me is that the way I heard it as a kid, that the sort of like the decline of America began in the sixties with the sexual revolution and the rise of youth culture and all that kind of stuff. Um, but historically, that means that there was really like, you know, 10 or 15 good years there in the middle of the 20th century when when conservative values really kind of rose in prominence and then they started to kind of go back down again. But you're exactly right that it's easy for people to, to kind of remember the prominence in the middle of the last century in the 50s or so and, and, and think that – either think that or assume or infer that that prominence – had existed up until that point rather than that it was a new thing in that generation. 
Well, I think too, we have to be careful. Uh, you know, the other side of revisionist history is to demonize those that, that made this change. I mean, when people are, um, are bringing these views into light becomes, you know, popular perspective within America, it was not the intent to, um, there was no ill content, you know, it, it wasn't right. something that people were thinking, Hey, you know, 70 years from now, I hope this becomes a, a point of contention, you know, around the United States, but they were That's thinking, right. how can we pe- draw people closer uh, in their mind to what they believed is drawing people closer to Christ. But you're right yeah. in, in the name and the name of God. And that's why, as we consider those that want to uh, make America a Christian nation, there, there's a long history. There is a long line of people who've come before us who said the same things and did a lot of horrible things. You know, we mm-hmm. obviously begin with the, the Roman Empire. We can scoot our way through the Middle Ages and the Crusades. We can go to the Inquisition. We can look at the unthinkable uh, acts of, of, of slavery and what happened to the Native American population in the United States, along with the Jim Crow laws. And we are just breezing straight through a lot of horrific things done in, in the name of God. Um, so one of the, the brilliant aspects of your book is you you um, raised the light of, I guess for a lot of people who aren't Baptist, um, Isaac uh, Bacchus, who is this um, wonderful Baptist minister, um, you know, in the 18th uh, century, um, who uh, who is doing this this work. So tell us a little bit more about Bacchus for those that aren't familiar with him. Sure. So Isaac Bacchus um, was... Uh, Born in Massachusetts, um, sorry, he was born in Connecticut, and he was, uh, but spent his life in um, in uh, New England and his ministry in New England. He became a, a born again Christian during the First Great Awakening, and uh, actually was at a meeting where he heard someone read a sermon by George Whitfield, and um, and was convicted by it, and left feeling convinced that he'd had a conversion uh, experience at that point. Um, Then he began sort of his self-guided theological education. He didn't have any formal theological education or college education for that matter, but he, uh, he read widely and was especially influenced by Jonathan Edwards, uh, who was also, you know, one of the luminaries of the great awakening. Um, And then it took him about 10 years to, at first when he became uh, a born again Christian, he didn't feel comfortable going to the local church because the local church had opposed the awakening. And so he felt like they were not sincere believers. And so he gathered with a group and formed a church. Uh, But it took him about 10 years to go from being a separate who didn't worship with the established church to becoming a separate Baptist and um, which meant that now he had changed his views on baptism. Uh, That happened over the course of about 10 years. Um, And around about that time, he started advocating locally for religious liberty because um, people legally weren't allowed to just stop going to the local church, especially to stop paying taxes to support the local minister who was established by the state. So when People like Bacchus separated from those churches and stopped paying taxes. There could be penalties like fines or jail time and other things like that. So he started advocating locally for religious liberty. Um, and eventually, over time, his efforts became larger in scale. And so when the uh, founding fathers were discussing, you know, forming a new constitution and all those kinds of things, uh, Bacchus actually presented his case for re- religious liberty at the First Continental Congress, and uh, he, you know, corresponded with people like Madison and Jefferson, George Washington. Uh, he um, was a delegate to uh, ratify the Constitution uh, when that 
came around. And so he was very much involved in uh, both local ministry. His entire life, he pastored a church for 30 years while he was doing all those other things. Um, But he was a a tireless advocate for um, the right of you know, of dissenting groups to be able to worship without fear of government interference. Um, and I think of him as sort of like the Forrest Gump of church history at this point, because he wasn't the most important person in a room at any time, but, but he, he's connected to all of those significant events, the kind of iconic events between the first great awakening and the revolutionary war and the continental Congress and the bill of rights and all of that. Um, and actually lived just long enough to begin to see the stirrings of the second great awakening, which, uh, you know, encouraged him in his old age to see, uh, that, that basically a lifetime of gospel work that he was doing was now beginning to result in new revival. Um, so that's the thumbnail, and then we can dip down, obviously, in any of those places that uh, that you want to. Well, the important thing is you just identified the second title of your Bacchus book, you know, Isaac Bacchus, the Forrest Gump of the 18th century. <laughs> that's right. When the movie rights come out, we'll see what we can do <laughs> with that. <laughs> uh, well, Bacchus is, is credited with saying, when church and state are separate, the effects are happy, and they do not at all interfere with each other, but where they are confounded together, no tongue nor pen can fully describe the mischief that they have Mm. ensued. Mm. Um, So one complaint I do have about your book, and it has nothing to do with the the content inside. It actually has to do with the cover. Um, Uh You you cut off the best part of the Bacchus portrait, which is his 18th century mullet. You did the mane. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's been converted into a mane, I suppose. Uh, The horse head there with him. Um, yes. I, uh, you know, a lot of good has happened over history and I think hairstyles are one of the positive improvements. Well, people will just have to Google Isaac Backus to <laughs> really see because you've robbed this man of, of his glorious, <laughs> glorious mullet. You know, the, the thing about the book, what's brilliant about the book is you, you take the, the historical uh, context of a man like Isaac Backus and you use it as a way to introduce conversation today. Um, one of the quotes that stuck out to me from the book, you said, uh, the legislation that now protects religious practice in America is in the place to protect ourselves against our own tendency to marginalize groups we find threatening. Hmm. Um, you know, if as I think around, um, you know, those that want to play the persecution card um, when they interject their thoughts, it is this weird, delicate balance of, um, you know, in their mind, if they view uh, America as a theocracy, uh, and they express their views that could be anti whatever change is taking place within culture, then it, it creates this, uh, di- this dynamic of confusion um, around, um, around who they are, around the voice of authority they have within society. Um, so very much so, I would say that, that, uh, that I would agree with you, that the laws that have been put in place um, can easily be used by the church to marginalize others versus the church be marginalized by the group culture around us. Yeah, I, you know, you're you're raising a couple of interesting points. I, um, one of them is, you know, a quote that I like, a sort of um, a, a short quote of Bacchus's that I like is that uh, he was very concerned about. Um, majority becoming the the test for orthodoxy. So his his concern was essentially that, you know, just because most people believe a thing doesn't make a thing true. And I think that often what um, 
conservative Christians who are involved in conservative politics as well uh, often do is you even you think of the term like moral majority. I think there's this sense in which we feel like if most people agree with us or if there's this huge group of people that agrees with us, then it must be true and it must be applicable to everyone. And, um, and I think that that I, again, that's not coming necessarily from a, uh, a sinister place or a desire to rule anyone, but but I think that uh, one of the things that Bacchus was clear about is that that anyone can turn majority into orthodoxy, not just the people who are in power uh, at a given time. So uh, there's a, one example in in his story that I really appreciate is in a village um, uh, during his ministry, Baptists actually became the majority in a in a village. And uh, this was great news for Bacchus, obviously, for for spiritual reasons. He thought that meant that, you know, that that uh, meant the majority of people were true believers. But they were tempted then because they had the majority to then use that majority in, in order to tax all the other citizens of the town to help them build a meeting house. And Bacchus said, you just under no circumstances can you be a part of that because that undermines everything that we're working for. Um, that, you know, their majority can't be the test of orthodoxy and your majority can't be the test of orthodoxy. So I think that's a, you know, a really important point that even if every, uh, if, if 80%, you know, a poll said recently 80% of Americans believe in God, you know, um, I think even if every 80% of Americans were um, evangelical Christians and devout and sincere evangelical Christians, that would not mean that we then had the right to impose that in some way on the other 20%, right? Our our majority does not equal orthodoxy necessarily. So um, I think that's one thing that's helpful. Another for Bacchus is that um, I was just looking for it here. I have a document in front of me that I was rereading um, yesterday, but he uh, was very concerned about the, uh, from a theological point of view, that um, that human beings are all sinful. And this is, I think, his most important theological contribution to all of this and something we could learn from is that uh, he was a Calvinist, and that means he believed in original sin and people's sort of totally depraved state. And um, and he, he says here in this in an ordination sermon that I just pulled up, he said, no, no man can act from any higher principle than self until he is born from above, meaning the only thing any of us can ever kind of ultimately achieve is our own self-interest unless the Holy Spirit gives us something greater to work for toward, which is God's glory and those other things. But even with the work of the Holy Spirit, <laughs> you don't automatically, you know, lose your self-interest. It's a matter of submitting yourselves to the leadership of Christ. And so his concern is that if we're all motivated as a baseline by our self-interest, and then even those of us who are converted and have you know, God is at work in our lives, even then we're still prone to be motivated by our self-interest, then how in the world can we ever guarantee liberties to people that we disagree with if those liberties are not uh, protected by law? Because if we're all motivated, motivated by our own self-interest, then we're always going to be pushing for more rights for ourselves, um, more privileges for ourselves, more comfort for ourselves, um, and and won't be looking out for the good of others based on some innate goodness in us. Uh, and so we have to have laws to protect ourselves um, from other people's self-interest, but also to protect others from our own self-interest. And I think that that's a really profound um, place to start in a discussion about religious liberty or racial reconciliation or pretty much any kind of conflict is that 
you know, if we could start the conversation knowing that in my, in my own power, I'm going to be motivated by whatever suits me best or serves me best. Um, then I think I have a place to start recognizing, uh, you know, how my vision might be obscured by my own self-interest and what I need to do. Um, and what, how I might need to vote or what, what might need to be legislated in order to protect myself from other people's preferences, but also to protect others from mine. Well, you do raise an interesting point. And I think that's one of the things that I've always found ironic about the theocratic perspective of a, of a lot of people towards America is it's this idea that uh, if we, quote, enforce these laws that reflect the Bible, that, that somehow people will come to know Christ, to be conformed to Christ, yet we see in the writings of Paul that it's not in the restrictions of laws that brings about transformation, but the transforming power of Christ's love and grace within our lives. So, you know, it, it, it is fascinating the place that it leads people. I mean, just to take, for example, and this has actually come up a couple of times in the podcast over the last couple of months. You look at the example of Roy Moore in, in Alabama, you know, here is a man who, whatever point you want to argue clearly has a very shady past. Um, and his past includes um, this, uh, we can say supposed, um, because, you know, it, that still is under litigation right now, um, mm -hmm. the molestation of underaged women. And yet, in, in the evangelical mind, uh, there's a justification of, of voting for Roy Moore because, quote, he's bringing Christian values and at least he's not doing things like supporting abortion, which seems to be uh, the catch-all argument for most people when it comes to politics that come from a conservative perspective in America. So, you know, at what point do we as followers of Christ, at what point do we, uh, as those that are trying to do the good work of the gospel, um, I guess allow our, our, our basic uh, religious convictions, our basic uh, experience with Christ of the transforming power to direct who we are and, and how we vote versus, I guess, versus this legalistic perspective of, of transformation. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to come at that from, uh, from the side for a minute. And if that doesn't address the question, feel free to ask it again. But the, uh, the connection that, that I wanted to point out with Bacchus, for example, and actually Baptists in general in his time, is that, uh, you know, Bacchus uh, said at some point that, um, coercion can't create Christians. It can only create hypocrites. Um, and I think that was a fairly popular view among Baptists at the time. John Leland, who was active in Virginia and was younger than Bacchus, but they were contemporaries, was actually um, much more radical in some ways than Bacchus was. And Leland opposed Sunday schools um, because uh, he was afraid that they would teach children to behave like Christians, but that they that they wouldn't necessarily teach them to believe like Christians. And if that's the case, then you've just turned them into little Pharisees and it's much harder to convert Pharisees later. So there's, there was this concern from a lot of Baptists in, you know, in the 18th century that if, if we force people to act like Christians or if we force them to, if the state forces them to behave a certain way, it'll make us feel better because we see behaviors that we like, but it's not coming from the fruit of the gospel. It's coming from, uh, legalism. It's coming from Pharisaism, and, and that's not better. So for a little context, just um, 
for people who are listening and don't know, the Sunday School movement actually started um, as purely educational um, because kids who were working, uh, whether it's in factories and cities or on farms, usually worked Monday through Saturday and couldn't go to school. And so Sunday schools were actually educational to begin with. They used the Bible to teach children how to read. And so there was definitely a religious um, context connotation, but um, but some Baptists were concerned that even that we're, we're, we're coercing children into acting like Christians, but we're not actually giving them the gospel so that it will change them. And so I think that's something that we should be mindful of, uh, you know, that in our legislation, you know, I don't hear it quite as much these days, but as a kid, I heard often, you know, the, the debate about legislating morality. Um, it's, it's still happening, but I don't, we don't hear that terminology quite as much. But I think the problem with legislating morality is that it can make you feel better that you don't now see misbehavior or you don't now see sin, but it doesn't mean that you've eradicated it. It just means you don't see it. And it doesn't mean that the people who are now behaving the way you want them to have have sincerely changed from their hearts because of the work of the Holy Spirit. It just means that they're, you know, that they've stopped publicly celebrating certain things. Uh, so I think that if we really want to see transformation in people, then we have to be careful about our motives in uh, how we legislate some of those kinds of things. I don't know if that ever got to the question that you asked, but that's my <laughs> two cents. No, you just took my confusion and made it something a bit more clear. And if anybody's oh, interested in seeing the end result of what that looks like, there's a great documentary on Hulu right now called The Hands Made Tale. Um, mm. So we can see what begins to happen when our religious convictions are enforced on other people. Um, Brennan, this is a brilliant book. Um, what, Thank you. What's your greatest hope from the book? I think, you know, I think that the subtitle, um, An Untold Story of American Religious Freedom, you know, in some ways that's misleading because other people have told Bacchus's story before and other people have talked about religious freedom. But I think that the, the part that's maybe not untold, but at least it's not in the, it's not in the popular imagination. I think the, the part I would like for people to catch is that religious liberty emerged in America the way we understand it now. Separation of church and state and the protection of religious liberty emerged because persecuted minorities in America fought hard to make sure that those protections were included in our founding documents. So Isaac Backus, and, and on behalf of Baptists, proposed a Bill of Rights uh, to the Constitution before one was proposed by founding fathers and adopted. Um, uh, I have said this before, and I've misstated it other places. It's not that our founding fathers were not concerned about religious liberty. It's that they, for the most part, they didn't really feel it as an existential reality, the way Baptists and Quakers and even Catholics felt it in certain uh, colonies. And so uh, they they theoretically wanted it included, but they weren't as urgent about it as, as some of uh, as groups like the Baptists. And so it's striking to me that if you tell the story of American religious liberty as this is something that's been in our DNA since the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock, then it's it's difficult to have conversations with people who disagree because people who disagree are suddenly un-American or they don't share in your DNA or they're, they're despising your history or something like that. But if we could recognize that in actual fact, what happened is it took, you know, a long time for um, a hundred, more than a hundred years for um, 
groups like Baptists and others to have equal protection under the law. Um, Bacchus died in 1806. It wasn't until the 1830s that that a, a particular branch of Christian religion was finally disestablished in Massachusetts. Um, it was, uh, I think, in the 1830s that um, the ban was lifted on Catholics in Georgia running for public office or something. So, I mean, into the 19th century, this is not all that long ago, um, that we were still struggling to figure out who was allowed to have religious freedom. Uh, in what ways does it apply to them? Um, what to what extent are we able to extend it? You know, is it just what they believe, or is it also how they behave? And and can that be private, or can it also be public? I mean, that's never been a settled question in America. And so I think for me, if any, if everybody who read the book could come away with uh, one nugget, it would be that that this discussion about religious liberty has never been settled. We're not declining from a golden age. We're just we're kind of revisiting the question again, like we do in every generation. And that's that's an immensely frustrating proposition if you have no historical perspective. But if you have a guide like Isaac Backus, you can say, look, he wrestled with these questions. He did it in these ways. Sure, I'd do it differently, but at least I've got somebody that I can you know, learn from and, and converse with. Um, I think that's what I would hope for people is that they would, would have that longer historic, historical perspective that also gives them greater confidence in having these discussions today. For those that want to follow him on Twitter, Brandon J. O'Brien. You can also find more information about it on his website, brandonjobrien.com. Pick up a copy of Demanding Liberty, an untold story of American religious freedom wherever books sold. You can also pre-order the second volume, Isaac Backus, The Forrest Gump of the 18th Century. <laughs> Let's Brandon, get started on that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for joining the conversation. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.net. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GOTOGUY.net. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 